this morning, if you just turn with me for a minute to Hebrews 11, uh, before I go on from that point, we're speaking about those who are going to be the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, as we said, the church is the bride of Christ when Christ gathers his own unto himself, the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ comes, tribulation is going on upon the face of the earth, the time of Jacob's trouble in heaven. Number one is the judgment seat of Christ to judge every believer for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. doesn't have to do with sin anymore. Sin has been taken care of. The penalty is death for sin. That's been taken care of, but works have to be judged, as I said from that portion before. And so there is the judgment seat of Christ to answer where the Christian answers for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad, before the Lord Jesus. In other words, what did you do with your new life in Christ? The change that came into your heart, did it radically change your whole life? Or was it a salvation that merely appealed to you mentally, that maybe you could escape hell if you grabbed on to Christ. Well, this has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is of the whole man, the soul. Salvation is not of the brain. Salvation is of the heart. The mind is involved because the mind is transformed by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. But with a heart, the man believes. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. We might mentally assent to the Scriptures, and we might consent they're good. All Christianity gives some consent to the Scriptures. Modernists, neo-Orthodox, Orthodox, all give some consent to the Scripture. The Orthodox, the man who really believes on Christ, or you hear the word fundamentalist, or evangelical sometimes is used, those who really trust Christ as personal Savior are redeemed in the blood of the Lamb. They know it. Others will give credit to the Bible. They'll say they believe the Bible, but it's a, a mental assent to it. They have come to it, and somehow, mentally, uh, it's uh, almost an escapism. It, it might be what the Russians say, an anesthesia to some. But to the redeemed man, it is life. Life in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, there is this area that we are in as a church. You know whether you're redeemed this morning or not. You know whether you'll have part in the marriage supper of the Lamb and you'll be part of the bride of Christ, which is his church, Paul says. The church is his body, he says. And we're members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And this is marriage. That's why it says the marriage of the Lamb is come and his bride hath made herself ready. Because when you're members of his flesh and of his bones, it's marriage. When you're joined together to a man, ladies, you become one with him. He is the head of the body, even as Christ is the head of the church. Let us never forget this. I'm teaching doctrine. Ephesians 5 says the man is the head of the body even as Christ is the head of the church. And so you become one with the man, one flesh, members one of another. Ye too shall be one flesh. 
There need be no rebellions under such a glorious relationship with a real Christian loving husband. If the husband fits the place that Christ wants him to, there is no problem. There's no dictatorial things that are set up. The love of that Christian husband's heart is of such a character and so deep and so tender that to be committed to him or submissive to him is the great joy of life. We can hear about marriages being thrown out the window. I hear about some new groups in the world now, feminist groups or feminist groups that are, you know, going to throw out marriage and all the rest and toss it out. And some of the theologians who say this age, uh, marriage isn't necessary. But I want to tell you something. Marriage has nothing to do with God, with man. It has to do with God. Man didn't start marriage. God did. And God has not changed. He's not variable. And marriage is his ordained way. And so the marriage of the Lamb is coming. And the bride, the church, has made herself ready. Then there are the guests. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I've been talking about these guests. And the guests that I'm primarily thinking about are in Hebrews 11, which is the great chapter of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And... Uh, as I said a few weeks ago, actually it should be the great chapter of God's grace. Because really, if any chapter ever shows forth the grace of God, this chapter does. That it's only by grace you can be saved. And that while these men showed great areas of faith life, I want to assure you that they only could be saved by faith. You see, only could be saved by faith. They may have shown areas of great faith in some areas of their lives. But make sure that you understand that you cannot take the whole panorama of anyone's life and say there is a perfect life of faith. There is no perfection. Panoramically looking at your life and my life, redeemed in the blood of Christ, and looking from God's viewpoint, not ours, because we know very little about each other, but looking from God's viewpoint down upon man, we have to go along with what he says. He says, you are all unprofitable servants. In other words, there's so much failure about us, you see. Perfection is only as we are in Christ, he sees us made perfect in Christ. That's why we're saved by grace through faith. It is the faith, remember. By faith we have received Christ into our heart. And our perfection is in him, never in ourselves. You couldn't stand a day without Christ to forgive your sins. Every day of your life. You may try to cover them and you may gloss over them and figure that the only thing is sinful is something that's very, very bad and very deep. But I assure you that there are many things in every life that if they're not confessed, they should be. So that there's a cleansing every day in our lives. Now, these were by faith. And I talked to you about Abel. Abel was the first man mentioned in this portion here in Hebrews 11. And uh, Abel is spoken of as the one who in a great sense, opens the way of redemption to our hearts so that we understand 
that it is by blood sacrifice. I don't want to go through that again. I explained it to you that Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And he indicated that someone had to die for his sins. That's why he brought the fat thereof. Lord, an innocent substitute died for me. So that when Christ came, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, we would recognize it very easily. This is that which Abel spoke of. Abel, though dead, yet speaks to us. Because the blood sacrifice of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the New and has been completed. And there remaineth now no more sacrifice for sins. It's past. Christ hath paid the penalty for us all. For he hath by one offering made perfect forever them that are sanctified, those that are separated unto him, those that have believed on his blessed name. So Abel is the first one. And uh, Abel is the one who opens the door of redemption to our hearts. Notice the portion that talks about him. It says that in the fourth verse, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. That's it. How is a man made righteous? He's made righteous by the blood of Christ. How was Abel made righteous? He was made righteous because he knew that without the shedding of blood there was no remission of sin. His father Adam had told him that. His father Adam had had to have skins made. He wanted to just have the fig leaves as a covering for his nakedness and God made him a coat of skins. Someone had to die for Adam's sin. He passed it on to Abel. And Abel understood And he witnessed before man that he was made righteous because God accepted his sacrifice, his offering, and he did not accept Cain's. So the first one is Abel. Now the last one mentioned specifically is Rahab. And that's what I'd like to deal with with you this morning. The last one is Rahab. And that is mentioned in the... 31st verse of Hebrews 11. By faith, you don't expect this word, do you? The harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the the spies with peace. Now, the preceding verse tells you where it is. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days, and by faith, Rahab, the harlot, perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Now, beloved, Rahab's faith was of an unusual character. Rahab was a pagan. She was of of the nation of Canaan. She was an Amorite. These were the desperate enemies of Israel. She lived in the land of Canaan. Joshua had been given directions of God that Israel was to move forward and to possess Canaan. There were seven nations in Canaan that held the land at that time. And Joshua is directed to move forward and to possess the land. 
Moses had not entered in. Joshua and Caleb came along. Remember, all of those marching in the wilderness for 40 years, they had all perished. And then Joshua and Caleb came, and the people of Israel that followed them, the young people, so many of them, were following them. And they were directed that they were to enter into Canaan. And you can picture now, if I can give you the background, here is Joshua. Joshua is Jesus. The Jesus of the New Testament, we can think of. But we can think of Joshua, the great deliverer. And we can see Joshua as he is directed of God to prepare for the going into Canaan's land and taking possession of the land. And he takes a look. Seven nations all opposed to him, pagans. There's been no temples in Canaan. There's been no Bible, no Old Testament, no reading of the Scriptures. There hasn't been anything at all. Canaan and all the nations are as wicked as they can be. They're an abomination to God. And Joshua is told to go forward with Israel, two and a half million people, you know, when we hear of displaced persons today, we think, well, you know, they just mean a few people. This was two and a half million people. And God had promised the land to Abraham that thy seed should possess it. And more than a dozen times, God repossesses Canaan. They possess it and they're out, their sin, their failure, back again, and he does it in many ways. Through armies, through miracles, he does it in tremendous ways. And I couldn't help but think, you know, as I was thinking of that, there are seven nations there again. And once more, Israel wants the land. And I tell you, as I think of it, I think to myself how wondrous our God is. Preserving Israel. I read in the paper here the other day, it says, Midi size up. Arabs still no match for Israel. But you know, it's a completely secular viewpoint on the whole situation. It says, Egypt's receiving Russian military hardware, training, and assistance, but still is not a match on the battlefield against Israel, a country with less than one tenth of Egypt's population. If the Arabs have an overwhelming numerical superiority of arms and men, why then is it that Israel has such a clear advantage over these people? And here's what they say. It's a matter of quality of techniques and organization and training. But I want to tell you, it is our God. And the final battle is coming yet in which our God is going to win for Israel. Because he actually won each time for Israel, you see. Israel didn't win the battle. Israel didn't win the battle in Jericho. That's where they were going over in Canaan land, to Jericho, with all of its walls, with the great river Jordan between Joshua and then the Jordan and then Jericho. And here is Joshua wanting to go. 
desiring to please his God. And yet, there was in his heart a fear. How was he to possess this land? This land that was on the other side of the Jordan. And so Rahab the harlot comes into the picture. Now, she's quite an amazing woman. Here she is, she's dwelling in Canaan. She's a woman of deep sin. She's a prostitute. Some of the commentators have tried to make her the keeper of an inn, but the word is so clear what she was that there's no doubt, and God makes sure he puts in the word that she was a harlot. And here is this woman over in the land of Canaan, over in Jericho, and an amazing thing happens. In Hebrews it says, By faith Rahab greeted the spies of Joshua with peace. And just think about Rahab for a minute. Here she is in a country where it's steep, deep in sin. She hasn't had the word of God. The how of redemption we saw in Abel. And now we want to see the full extent of that redemption. The whole fullness of it is revealed in Rahab. We go through all the gamut of those who are in Hebrews 11. By faith they did this, by faith they did this. And then we come to the harlot Rahab. And she by faith did this. And you say, how could this be? How is it possible for a harlot like Rahab to have had faith? Well, beloved, let me read to you, because unless we know what the Old Testament said, we will not understand what faith is. Let me read to you Joshua. You can find, if you have your Bible and you don't know where it is, look on that frontispiece and get the page and you can turn to it. Joshua, the second chapter, because this deals with Rahab. Now, Rahab... The spies come to her. God wonderfully directs. Two spies leave Joshua to spy out the land. You know, much like our intelligence. And they go to spy out the land. And they get over there. And immediately God directs them to Rahab the harlot's house. And she greets them with peace. Marvelous how God does things. Remember Cornelius and how wonderfully God directed him. We could think of the Ethiopian eunuch. We could think of all of the different ones. How they're directed by God and how Philip is directed, how Peter's directed, Paul is directed to make sure they get to these places. And here they're directed to come in. Joshua, the second chapter, and she has now told them that the spies have left. They find out that the spies are in her house. And the king sends his gods up to find out the spies. And they come to Rahab's house and they ask Rahab, where are the spies? And Rahab, who has them hidden up on the roof, she says they, they went that away. She directs the soldiers. They went that way. And then notice now what it says here. Eighth verse. And before they lay down, she came up unto them upon the roof 
And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen among us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what she did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. Notice, for the Lord your God, he is God of heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord. You see her faith? She hadn't heard the word of God directly, but she believed in the God of Israel. And God will make sure if you show faith in the God who made heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, God will give more light to those who have some light. Our difficulty is that so many people believe there is no God, though they worship trees and birds and creeping things, as Romans says. They'll worship images. They'll do anything. But she believed in Israel's God, and she says, God opened the Red Sea for you. We know this. And she said, Now therefore I pray you swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you'll also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Boy, she went way out, didn't she? Huh? She says, I believed in this God that saved you. I believed in the God that divided the Red Sea. Now I'm going to ask you something. I've made sure that the soldiers did not take you Oh, I told them to go out the other way. God does an amazing thing about the failures of his children sometimes. Some people say, well, Rahab lied, you see. I want to tell you something. If in this United States of ours, if somehow the church of Jesus Christ was placed in a position where those who were the emissaries of Christ or men of such character like Billy Graham, some of the great saints of God, and if in that day they were to come to my house and they were to say to me, the soldiers are coming to take us and to put us to death, I'd put them on the roof too. And I'd say, they went that way. And I would rest in my God then to forgive my sin of having lied on such a high principle of God. God says, by faith, Rahab hid his children. How do we know it's by faith? Now, I don't agree with some commentators on this because some commentators say that Rahab, for fear of her own life, did this thing. No such thing. 
It cost Rahab tremendously. Let me tell you, the cost to Rahab was this. When she did that, she was saying, I'm not afraid of death. They were only on the roof. All they had to do was search the house and she'd be dead. On the high holy principle of, even if they slay me, the servants of the living God are going to go back to the land. This people are a wicked people. She turned from the nation that had succored her for the years under which she'd been a harlot. She forsook the nation and she turned to the living God. And she feared not death when she said they went that way because her faith was of such a character that she believed that any God who could open the Red Sea, this was the God who made heaven and earth and could preserve her in anything. We never condone lying. God has never condoned it. We can look in Scripture. We can see time and again. God does not condone sin. Never can it be condoned. But let us remember that if we were to take Abraham's life, David's life, any of these lives, and take one great panoramic view of their lives, we'd find in David and Abraham and all of the others much worse and more terrible sins than Rahab ever, ever committed. And I don't see anyone saying anything about Abraham's name being listed in there or David's name being listed in there. Although David was a murderer, David was an adulterer, Abraham was an adulterer, Abraham sold his wife away as a sister, so they wouldn't kill him. And Abraham ended up with concubines. But I don't see anybody say, well, why don't they leave Abraham out? And why don't they leave David out? But they'll pick the old poor harlot Rahab and say, Rahab lied about the spies. How did she ever get in there? How do we ever get this way as human beings? Aren't we strange? Listen, her faith was tremendous. She believed. And because of that blessed faith that she had, she did what she did. She couldn't do anything else. What could you do? Let me ask you honestly and truthfully, if tonight you were placed in the same position and I came to you as pastor again and you put me on the roof, and they come in and they say, tell me what he is, we want to kill him. Say, so he's up on the roof, go ahead and get him. Well, that's the fallaciousness of the whole thing. No one ever complains about any of the others. All of the great saints of faith in here. No one ever says a word about Abraham. No one ever says a word about David. Ten times worse than anything Rahab ever did. But no one ever complains about them. When they come to the lineage of Jesus Christ, isn't it an amazing thing with Rahab? Rahab's in his lineage. You say, oh no, please. Not Jesus. Yeah. She became part of Israel. You know, this was a wonderful indication to the church of the living God. God began back there pulling Gentiles in. Rahab was a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile. He began then pulling them in, you see. The whole world was to come to their salvation. 
But here is Rahab the harlot. And God graciously takes her and does an amazing, amazing thing. She becomes a child of faith. And they say to her, I'm going to tell you just so that I don't have to go down through the Scripture. They say to her, after she has taken them, she's described her faith to them, and she says, will you save my father and my mother and my, my whole family? Will you save them? Because I want them all to be saved. Listen, I wonder how many of you are that definite, you know. Go to the Lord. Lord, I, I really want them to be saved. Not just me. I want them to be saved. And they say, yes, we'll do this for you. But here's what you'll have to do. And she lets them down by a rope. Her house is on the wall of Jericho. She lets them down. And here's what they say to her. You're to put this scarlet rope out the window. And when we see the scarlet rope, we will save all that are in the house. If your father and mother come into the house, it will indicate they believe that the scarlet thread that hangs from your window is saying that you are under the protection of the God who has redeemed us. And that scarlet thread, beloved, is exactly the same as the blood that was on the lintel and the doorpost of Israel and the angel of death passed over them because they were under the blood and the scarlet thread. All who came in were saying, we believe in this God. And the scarlet thread spoke of the blood that takes away sin. And also says, though your sins be as scarlet, Rahab, they'll be white as snow. And so Rahab is rejoicing, rejoicing. What happens to Rahab? Rahab is redeemed. Joshua brings his two and a half million people to the very brink of the Jordan. Jordan is in the overflowing season. It's ordinarily 30 yards wide, Jordan. And now it is a mile and a half wide. And the surging torrents are coming down with debris down the river. And Joshua stands there with all the two and a half million strong. And God says, here's what I want you to do, Joshua. I want you to have the priests get the Ark of the Covenant. What's the Ark of the Covenant? It's the mercy seat above the law where the blood is placed. So God looks upon the blood and he sees not man's sin. He says, have the priest carry the Ark of the Covenant and then have the people follow and so there's quietness, two and a half million people. You can imagine, I imagine they had to stretch their necks like you did to see the pianist this morning, only more so. And you can picture all packed around, all their belongings, all the little children, the weak and the frail. It didn't matter what they were. They weren't all strong. It's wonderful to know that. You know, you might say survival of the fittest, right? Well, it doesn't work in Christianity. May I say that? Though your faith was as a mustard seed, it would be enough to get you there, you see? Oh, I'd like it to be more than a mustard seed. But if it was like a mustard seed in Jesus Christ, it's sufficient. You're redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so they come down to the river's edge, and there they watch the swirling waters. And Joshua believes God, and he says, Priest, you are to take the Ark of the Covenant, and you're to step in the waters. And the priest look, and it's a mile and a half wide. The rivers are billowing down, and they look, and they get there. And the priests, I can imagine, even the priests themselves probably, you know, 
They get down to the edge and they're taking one look at the water. All they know is God said so. But you know, even when God says so, sometimes you kind of shake and quiver, don't you? Huh? And I can picture them and when they get down near the water, nothing's happening. Not a thing is happening. And I can just picture them and I bet they close their eyes nearly, you know. And put that first foot gingerly into the water, you know. And they get their feet in the water. And suddenly, the water stopped flowing as they go forward, marching with the Ark of the Covenant. Two and a half million people waiting. And the priests walking in front with the Ark that spoke of the blood that cleansed from sin. It was the Ark of the Covenant. The law was in there, the mercy seat above it, and the pot of manna, and Aaron's budding rod. And here they walk with that Ark of the Covenant, and they cross, and the waters begin to dry up that way. The city of Adam was 30 miles up from the river, and up there is where the water stopped, according to the Word of God. 30 miles up the river, it stopped. I can imagine that a tremendous lake formed up there as the waters kept pouring down, and God put, just like that, they stopped with Adam. That was it. And they dried out from there on down. No water to go down into the Dead Sea. And then all Israel sees there's no water. The flood, the swelling tide has stopped. And they all come down and they begin to walk through. And it says, and the priest standed, stood in the middle of the river. Here it's all dry land. And you can picture the joy of their hearts. And I, you know, I imagine they kind of stood there kind of proudly then, you know, standing in the midst of the river. This swirling thing, it's all stopped. And all Israel walks through. And Rahab's on the other side. And Joshua says to them, when you go into the land, there'll be a house with a scarlet thread on it. Don't touch her. And all that are in her house will be redeemed, saved. How blessed, not wonderful. By faith, Rahab, she believed, she believed. And all Israel marched through went to the other side. Jericho's there. Do you remember the walls and how they marched around once every day for six days? And the seventh day, they marched around the walls seven times. And the seventh time, the trumpets blew and they shouted. And the walls, it says, fell flat. And they marched in and they took the city. And Rahab was the only one saved out of the whole city with her family. Oh, it pays to believe, doesn't it, huh? Listen, let me ask you something. Have you ever come to a river in life like that? There's a river to cross, and that river spoke of death, you see. Death and resurrection. The Jordan always spoke of death. It's that way with Christ. We have to die with Him. To get up on the resurrection side, which was Canaan land, we'd have to die with Jesus Christ. If you'd be dead with Christ, then are you also risen with Him. And so the Jordan was the death, you see. They walked through death and they came up on the other side. It was the shadow of death, that's all. It wasn't death. It was the shadow of death. They came up on the other side on resurrection ground for the Israelites. For there was the glories of the Canaan land that God had promised them. But in your life, have you come to rivers like that? You know, you come to a point in your life and you look and the swirling waters are there and the problems are tremendous and you, you wonder, how, how can I ever get through all these problems? Look at them swirling in front of me. It's too wide to ford. I can't do it. It's impossible. And the God who blessed Joshua says to you that He said to Joshua, 
sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow God will do wonders among you. Well, that's it. God will do wonders among you. Sanctify yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Well, I see the time flow. But may I just, in closing, say this. It's a marvelous thing about Rahab. I thrill because after you read about Rahab the harlot and her wickedness, it should say to all of us here this morning, including Pastor again, no matter what sin you've committed, harlot, yeah. murderer, yes, David and Abraham. I don't want to tell you about Judah. That's the lineage of Christ. That's the kingly line. I think Judah was about as wicked a man as I know. Judah's son died. And Tamar, who was the wife of that son, dressed up like a harlot. And Judah came into her. And she conceived child, and that's as the lineage of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in the line of Christ naturally that shows that he came of a perfect line of people. God is showing us that if you and I were to look back in our family lives, beloved, I would guarantee you, I don't know my great-grandfather, I don't know my great-great-grandfather, but I can assure you that there were hearts, there were members in every one of our lineages. Because Christ's lineage, which was a, a kind of a lineage he's showing to us, understand that if I came from a fleshly lineage it was of perfect people, you might have something to say. But I came of a lineage of people, Judah, the line of the king. And the kings committed incest and every kind of sin possible. But out of that line, Christ came according to the flesh. But he was born of the Holy Spirit of God coming upon Mary so that we wouldn't associate him with the sins of the past and say this is the perfect Son of God, the Son of Man who came forth, born of the Holy Spirit of God. If he were born of a natural man, if Joseph was his father, he's no better off than we are and he's really worse because he knows that lineage and I don't know mine. And looking at his I would have to say his lineage is worse than my lineage. But isn't it amazing what he does with Rahab? Let me finish with just Matthew first chapter. Fifth verse. And Salmon begat Boaz of the Greek is Rakab of Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed of Ruth. And Obed begot Jess. And Jess begot David the king. And so this woman who had been a harlot, a harlot, is married to one of the princes of Judah. She became an Israelite. Through faith she married Salmon, the prince of Judah. And then 
she becomes one of the grandparents of both David the king and Jesus Christ. Though your sins be as scarlet, what? They shall be, what? White as snow. White as snow. If ever God said to us, with Abel, he says, this is how it happened. This is how redemption came. Now he takes us to Rahab and he says, since you bypass Abraham and you bypass David with all of their sin because you look at them and they're men and you say, great men of faith and you don't notice their sin, I'm going to bring you down right to Rahab who was a harlot and I'm going to show you that by faith she was cleansed of her sin and she stood pure in the sight of God and she married a prince of the tribe of Judah, Salmon and ah, that relationship came forth David and then down to Jesus Christ. Oh, the grace of God. I'm glad the grace is that way. He couldn't save me. couldn't save you. Couldn't do it. What is grace? Unmerited favor. I'm sure that if this were you or me, we would have looked at Rahab and said, let's keep Rahab out of the picture. You know, she's been associated with the wrong kind of people. She's on the wrong side of the tracks. I'm so glad God is no respecter of persons. But to anyone that will believe that He is, and He's the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him, He will reveal unto us His Christ. And the blood that cleanses from sin. And no matter how defiled Abraham must be, no matter how defiled David may be, no matter how defiled Rahab may be, they are declared righteous. And God sees fit to put them in the very lineage of Christ. Some of the great preachers I know came out of terrible backgrounds, drunkenness, terrible conditions. But God redeemed them and set them upon the rock which is Christ and they have proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Oh, beloved, did you ever think you were past redemption? Huh? Uh, okay, then get a good look at Rahab, all right? You thought you were past redemption? Please never come to me as your pastor and say, Pastor, I think I've sinned past the day that I never can be redeemed because I'll have to take you then to all of these men and say, now listen, Unless you're much, much more sinful than they are, and no matter how far you went, God will still say, though your sins were scarlet, they'll be white as snow. White as snow. Wonderful grace of God. Let us pray. Father, we do thank Thee this morning for Thy precious Word, blessed to our hearts. And Lord, we're mindful of Thy great grace. If ever it's been displayed, it's been displayed in Rahab. We're so thankful for this. For somehow man in his mind has placed the vileness of a wicked woman as the lowest.